0: Okay. As they're collecting the questions, maybe maybe some of you just have a question you want to ask. Stand up and ask it verbally. It's fine. Oh, there are some questions. Okay, okay. We'll put a pause on that. I'll let my wife start since I've been talking a long time.
1: Okay, Um, this one says, have you specifically served the church youth together? And um, yes, we've been privileged to do that. We have ministered at at our youth camp together. So um, we've both spoken at the youth camp and then... um, as with any youth camp, we also just meet together privately with people and like in small groups or as uh, chaperones with devotions. So that's, that's one setting and youth camp is, is a wonderful place to minister to people because it's, it's like young people come away and come apart from their normal life and just kind of an interruption to just rest and, and think about real things. And it's, it's often a time when, um, when people um, are examining themselves spiritually, and it's a time when the Lord seems to work, also in um, mission trips and stuff like that. Um, we've both had a chance to work, um, to speak together with the youth at church youth groups. Of course, my husband much more than me. And sometimes we meet together with individuals. So... Um, it's kind of like what ever presents itself as an opportunity, and the youth are such an incredibly important part of the church because they're they're the future of the church.
0: Yeah, one other area that we've done up until a couple of years ago, but every year, you know, I would teach the Confession of Faith class, and then we would uh, bring the whole Confession of Faith class into our home. Uh, sometimes that was twenty young people. Sometimes it was up to thirty-three. And you know, just have a night of fellowship, and that was that's really special. And of course, young people who are dating, who have questions, or yeah, different counseling situations. So yeah, that was good. Um, we'll we'll just go back and forth here. I think. Do you initiate a family worship when you are invited to a house uh, where they don't have this habit? Um, I don't. I will say, though, that I will always ask them, um, say, do you mind if we have a prayer? I do do that. So I try never to leave a home without praying with a family. And uh, try to also often pray at the beginning of a visit. And um, I do that in my study, too, when somebody comes to talk to me about something. I always say, let's have a prayer first. And often I say to them, why don't you offer a blessing? And I I do the closing prayer. And I think as a minister, you have all the more right to do that because half of your calling is to be a man of prayer. So I, I want to be... Always praying with anyone who comes to me with any need. So in that sense, a little bit. I I, I do a little bit. But I don't introduce the whole family worship idea with them if the Father's not doing it. But I preach about it. I write about it. And on family visitation, that's an appropriate place to ask them, are you doing family worship? And how is it going? And how can we help you do it better? Uh, that 's a common question I ask when I do go on family worship.
1: This is a question to me um, what to you is the greatest challenge or hardship as a pastor 's wife <laughs> i I used to say, um, okay, I grew up in our church, so I was just a you know just a regular person in our church, and then I married the minister, so I suddenly became the the pastor 's wife so um Greeting people sometimes was awkward. Like I never shook hands with my cousins when I saw them at church, and then I'm married to the minister, and he shakes their hands. So okay, do I shake their hands or not? So sometimes that was a little awkward. But what I the the greatest challenge that I would say is um, knowing what to do and how much to do, and just the frustration of there's so much to do that you can help people. That I I just. I sometimes don't know where to begin and the 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 frustration of never being able to do enough for people and um it's it's a joy to serve it's a joy to serve people in their happy times and it's a joy to serve people in their their difficult times just to to help others is um is just a huge huge blessing and joy to serve and um so I guess the frustration, the hardest thing is not being able to serve as much as I would like to.
0: Yeah, sometimes we talk about it and say we get a lot of joy out of ministry, but we we always feel guilty. <laughs> we always feel guilty because I always feel like we're shortchanging people. There's so much more we could do in so many different situations. But then you have to understand... You can only do so much, and you need wisdom to know what to do, and what not to do, and how much to do of what you do do, and that's a constant prayer for us, because life is extremely busy, and God has opened many doors for us, and it's hard to know which doors to close and which doors to walk through. Uh, we have our ministers trained for four years at seminary. Should there be more training for elders and deacons? What an appropriate time. Um, I actually was just working on that today. We're developing a program at our seminary, particularly for elders, and um, I was just working on that, preparing a report for two professors who are supposed to develop a full report. Um, in the HRC, we have an office bearers conference. at Free Reform do too, but we've recorded all of them, and there's... Over the years, I think there's 50 to 60 recordings and about 15 or 20 of those are are directly for elders and I would rate them from a B to a straight A. Most of them are very good. A few are, I don't know if they're worthy of getting printed in a book or not, but they're still decent. But uh, they're not all of equal quality as you could expect, but many of them are, are very good. But what we're thinking of doing is starting a whole program and we're looking to see how long it should be and who should be involved and what should be taught and the subjects and then turning those addresses into little booklets that elders can read, booklets that are like the length of a sermon, how do you do family visitation. So that's, that's where we're at right now. So stay tuned, in a couple of months you'll hear, you'll hear more on this subject. I'm going to ask you in a minute to give my wife more questions. These three are a little bit more in my wheelhouse. Genesis 2, 18, please reflect on how Adam in the state of sinless perfection needed a helpmate. um, a counterpart. <clears throat> so I'm going to stand up because I'm a preacher. I, I think better when I stand up and I lecture standing up. So, um, I I want to take a minute to develop this, because I think I have something to say to here that you often maybe don't think about. The goal of God in marriage is that we live to his glory, right? And that we have companionship with one another. That we procreate and have children. And that we are kept from fornication. Now, some of that, especially the last one, is is a result of sin, the fall of Adam. But this question is asking, why pre-fall did God bring Eve to Adam? Hold that thought right there. Then go to all the religions of the world, either religions that have many, many gods. Everything's a god, basically, in many religions. Or... There's only one person in the Godhead, Allah, Islam. Did you ever think about this, that God in the Trinity doesn't have a marriage between the three persons the way we know marriage? Of course not. The Mormons are wrong. But God, in his triune persons, sets this pattern Of his created rational beings for us that he the uncreated one rejoices in intimate communion among the three persons of the Trinity so God is not a solitary God he has us the father has a son and they have a spirit and they commune with each other in wonderful ways could it be that God Prefall, reflecting his own character, fashioned the idea of marriage to reflect a little bit of that intimate communion that he has within himself? So that that intimate communion between a husband and wife, both walking with God daily in the garden in the cool of the day, could then glorify him better through the earthly communion, they could know him better in the heavenly communion with him and understand better the communion he has within himself. Don't forget when God made man, he said, let us, Trinity, make man in our own image. And so he made us knowledge, righteousness and holiness to be image bearers of him. And in his inscrutable wisdom he said that image bearing can be more complete when I make a woman from out of the side of a man to be one with him and to commune with him. And so as the Puritans used to say God didn't take the woman out of the foot of man so he could trample underfoot and be an authoritarian figure in her life. He didn't make him out of his head or his brain so that they have a cold intellectual relationship. But he took her out of the side so that they could be one together with all their affections and their love and their feelings and their commitment to each other. And then he gave them different roles in the economy of marriage, just like God has different roles in the economy of the Trinity. The Father didn't suffer. The Holy Spirit didn't suffer and die for us. The Son did. Who works salvation in your soul? Primarily the Holy Spirit. There's some overlap in those roles, just like there's some overlap in the roles of marriage. Husbands are supposed to love their wives. Wives are supposed to love their husbands. But each one has their own calling, their own distinct sphere of labor that they're to specialize in. So in the Trinity. So we're made in the image of God. So it makes us to be creatures that are so much more than than the animals. But even in the animal kingdom, don't forget God brought pairs together. So God thinks in terms of relationships. God is a relationship God. He's a God of communion. He's not like Allah, a solitary figure who can save you today, damn you tomorrow, save you the next day, and you just got to do the best you can of the five pillars of Islam and hope for the best because you're at the sheer capricious mercy of a radically sovereign God can do at any time what he wants to do with you, regardless of who you've been. See, God's a personal God, and so our marriages are to reflect that personalness. So, I hope I hope that's I hope that's helpful. You got one, now? yeah. Queens can remain seated.
1: Yeah, I prefer that. <laughs> um, I just actually had a thought um, to. Uh, tack on to what my husband said in his talk, and like everything that he said, he was speaking in context of minister and ministers' wives, but also elders and uh, deacons and their wives. But in in the whole church body, then you don't have to be an office bearer to do a lot of these things: the the hospitality and the you know the reaching out, the love, the kindness, and praying. That's that's something that the whole body of believers. Um, does together, and that's what makes a beautiful, strong church. So, um, it, yeah, that's we're a church family, and that's what, how we operate. Um, also, I, one thought is um, at the seminary, we have a gathering with the women. We call it Ministry Women's Fellowship, and um, we just strongly emphasize with the ladies who are... Um, to be uh, pastors' wives in the future or missionaries' wives or professors' wives or some of them are students themselves and they'll be counselors, but everybody looking towards serving the church in the future, that um, our priorities are first our relationship with God and then with our husbands and then our children and our church and, and then our community according to how much time and energy uh, we have. And we, we just emphasize over and over again to the women that you you have a position of power. You have power to nag your husband, to drag him down, to henpeck him, and to tell him he's not very good at what he does, and to, to be a burden to him. But you have power to support him and to, to lift him up, to encourage him, and to um, do everything in your power so that he can be all that he's uh, called to do, to be uh, according to his skills, his calling, his gifting, and you can be a real um, asset to him as a minister, and you're um, as a support behind him.
0: What are some practical ways office bearers can lovingly deal with difficult church members who consistently bring complaints and find issues with the church and its members. Um, How much time do we have? (laughs) There's a a lot that could be said here, but I'm just gonna give, I'll give you three three major pointers. Uh, Number one, be patient with these people. It doesn't work to run away from them you need to listen to them, even when you don't feel like listening to them. Now, there's a limit; you can't let them consume all your time. But um, yeah, you've got to you've got to give them attention. And um, sometimes, I think God puts such people in our pathway so that we we get exercised in sanctifying graces as well and we have to learn to be humbled sometimes listen to the same complaints over and over i had a man once who uh, he would come to me once a month with everything i said wrong in my sermons for the last month he'd say If you go to minute 32, second 14 on Sermon Audio, you said this, and you should have said that, don't you think? And this went on and on, on and on, on and on, every month, and it would be like an hour conversation. Well, I finally came to the point where I said, you know what, I I just, I got to tell him, he's got to just come once every half year. You know, build them up and come once and a half year, we'll have a long session. And um, so I was determined to do that. And uh, so he comes the next time and I'm bracing myself. And uh, he sits down and he says to me, I've come for a different reason today. Oh, this is an interesting beginning. He said, I've come here so many times to complain about your sermons. You know what? You must be really tired of me. (laughs) And I must be a nag in your side and a thorn in your flesh. And I was complaining about one of your sermons to one of our members. Whoops. You shouldn't have let that one out. But I knew he was doing it anyway. But he said, and that member said to me, you know, you're a thorn. You're going to be a thorn in the side of your pastor. Is that really what you want to be? And he said, God used it to convict me. So I don't come here with any complaints today. I come here to ask you, is there even a little corner in your heart where you could possibly forgive someone who's cost you so much trouble and you've been so patient with me? I didn't tell him. I was just about ready to tell him my patience is at an end. (laughs) Could you possibly forgive me? Well, that was one of the most surprising visits of my entire life. And so I looked him straight in the eye. I said, stand up, man. That's so what I said. Stand up, man. And he looked a little puzzled. He stood up. And I gave that guy a bear hug like you will not believe before he changed his mind. <laughs> and I said, I forgive you totally, totally. So that's my second point. When, some, when you get someone in a position of repentance, you're not a civil court where they've got to go to jail for two years before you forgive them. And they're acquitted. When they repent, you accept it immediately, fully. So you listen well, you accept repentance. And then the third point here is you try to teach them. You use it as a teaching opportunity that the church is ultimately not about people. We don't measure the church by the people in the church by how social they are, by how good the minister is. But we measure the church by Jesus Christ. And he's flawless. He's the head of the church. And since every single person in the church is a sinner, as the Puritans used to say, the church is an emergency room. Everyone has their diseases. Remember that, my friend. I've said this to many people. Remember no matter what church you go to you'll find many people that you will think are hypocrites or that you will think are inconsistent but we also need to look at ourselves you know the famous story i'm sure you heard of a spurgeon there's a woman that complained to him so much about the church finally he said what are you looking for a perfect church and she said yes he said don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore ouch <laughs> but You see, the point is, that's a good point. I wouldn't have said it that bluntly, but it's a good point. We are all imperfect temples. If you're saved, you're a temple of the Holy Ghost. But we're imperfect here. We haven't arrived yet. So we need to tolerate each other. And we don't measure the church by the church. We measure the church by Jesus Christ. And since he's altogether lovely, we learn to bear with each other's faults and expect faults. You know, I can go right down my elders. I can go right down my deacons. And I can tell you pretty much the strengths and the weaknesses of each one of them. But I accept each one for exactly who they are. With their weaknesses. And with their strengths. And they do the same thing with us as ministers. I've got plenty of faults to go around. They know know my faults. But they love me still. So I would say to this church member, please do yourself a favor. Focus on people less. Focus on Christ more. But do focus on yourself and your own weaknesses. And remember, we're all a work in progress. And so you're a sinner joining a bunch of sinners seeking to live out of the perfect and glorious Savior. And I'm not saying that's that's the answer. I'm not saying they'll always accept that answer. But you also want to look at the motivation of such people. What makes them so critical? Often you'll find out that they have very critical parents who were critical of the church all their life. The worst thing you can do for your family is to criticize the church in front of your kids. Almost inevitably, those kids will leave the church unless they have an incredibly overwhelming conversion because they've heard negative things about the church so we actually Mary and I we went through some pretty deep waters in the church but we said to ourselves we will talk together from heart to heart about different situations how we should handle them but we will never say a word to our children against the church or any weakness of the church when they're under our roof and We made plenty of faults. Don't get me wrong. We had plenty of faults in child rearing. But I think that's one thing we did right. When I look back, I think all of our children love the church. And I think that's the work of God, of course. and It's all grace. But what attitude the parents convey to their kids about the church? How excited are you to go to church on Sunday morning? You see, that sets the tone for the whole family. So, Talking to someone like that in this way I I think can be helpful, but only God can solve this problem altogether. God has to work with this individual, and uh, especially as a minister, when people complain about your sermons, I often tell the story of my dad. My dad was actually critical of one minister, uh, quite critical, who came to our congregation, and someone actually rebuked my dad he told me the story himself with tears and said you're 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 sinning and then my dad said to the person well what am i to do when i don't agree with some things or there's so much missing in the sermons and the man said stop listening to what's missing and stop start embracing what you do here and then he said something my dad told me that he never forgot. It changed my dad's whole attitude to that minister. And he got more out of the sermons. He said to my dad, if you keep thinking about the things that are missing, you'll come home with nothing. But if you think about what the minister saying, just ask the Lord if you can have one edifying thought you can take home from each sermon. If you have one edifying thought, that sermon was worthwhile to you. That's what my dad started doing. He soon found he had five or six edifying thoughts from every sermon. So a lot of it is an, uh, an attitude that you develop of expectation. And expect less of people, expect more of God.
1: I just want to add one little thought to that um... The, the minister and the office bearers set a tone of in the church, and um, the, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is a, a good lesson for us that uh, with dealing with difficult people, if you compare difficult people to the person who was uh, beat up on the side of the road that needed help, that we don't ignore those people, but we, we help them in, in a way that's best for them. And then Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. So when, when we do that, when we reach out to the 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 difficult people in our church, and the whole church probably knows who they are, um, then we set a tone um, of humility and, and service and love. Next question, how do you feel about teasing within a marriage if it is good-spirited and doesn't cut the other one down? Um, I... Every family is different when it comes to teasing, and and I think good-natured teasing is is fine. And some families do it a lot, and other families might observe them and say, "Whoa, that's kind of uh, that's kind of mean and tough." But that's what they do, and they they can handle it. And so I, I think the good-spirited teasing about even about each other's weaknesses um, it, is fine as long as it's taken in a spirit of, uh, that it's given, but when it becomes hurtful, and like a little knife in there, um, along with the the teasing, like much truth is said in jest, then then it's over the line. Um, With our kids, when they were growing up, and that's with kids, not uh, marriage. But I think the same rule applies: that as long as it was uh, fun and everybody was, you know, laughing and stuff, and nobody was hurt, it's fine. But when it starts to get get mean and, and cruel, that's that's when it's got to stop.
0: Yeah, thoughts to add. Um, I, 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 yeah, what Mary said was just just fine. Um, but I guess I would have one thought to add. That it depends also on the character of the husband and the wife. Um, quite frankly, we're both a little bit more of tender disposition. So um, Mary's very tender and sweet, so I would never tease her in an area of weakness. I just wouldn't do that to her. I think it could be hurtful. But we tease each other on other things and, and, and laugh a lot, um, that's, that's fine. But, and I'm, I'm kind of ten, tender as well in certain areas, it, especially. So I think she's gentle with me as well. So, um, when you constructively criticize each other through teasing, maybe, it, like she said, it's okay. But you can subtly, destructively criticize each other through, through teasing. And part of it depends on, on the home you grew up in, right? Um, the home I grew up in, my mother was extremely tender. And uh, if we kids even argued, I mean, like a normal argument between kids that most parents went bat an eyelash at, my mother would stand up. She wouldn't say anything to us. She'd walk out of the room and she'd walk into the bedroom. And we knew she was going to pray for us. And that just shut us up just like that. Not one word. Just walking into the bedroom. Oh, you guys, cut it out. Cut it out. You know? And consequently, we didn't argue very much as kids because, wow, it's going to send our mother to prayer. Uh, this is a serious thing. So, And she never told us. She just went to the bedroom. I mean, try it sometime. I don't know if it worked work for you. <laughs> Regarding confidentiality. Should the office bearer not be careful to burden his wife with the difficulties of church members protecting her from that stress? Yeah, very, very good question. There are certain things that an office bearer should not tell his wife that are very confidential, and he's promised not to tell anybody. He should honor that. Um, There are other things that if you know for sure your wife is very confidential, you can ask her advice on. Um, But there are some dangers. And one of these is depending here to the disposition of your wife. Many wives say, I I don't want to know. I don't want these burdens. Other wives say, I want to help you. I want to help you think through this. Uh, So you have to know your wife. And um, she's not 100% confidential. I wouldn't tell her anything that needs to remain confidential. Um. The other thing here that needs to be said is if something is done to me and I tell my wife what someone said about me or did to me or thought of my sermons, there's two dangers. One danger is that I will ramp up the story a little bit because it was so hurtful to me. I might exaggerate the tone of voice. I might leave out a couple of the other positive things a person said so that she actually hears the story even stronger than it was and feels more bitterness or more upsetness than even I do. That's a danger with a minister. You can't do that to your wife. You just can't. So you got to be very objective if you tell her something and stay very neutral yourself as you tell her. Not let your own emotions work up your wife. You understand what I mean? So that, that's a problem. And then the other problem, of course, in that is that you yourself think you're telling the story very objectively, but you yourself didn't read the other person entirely correctly, and you yourself are exaggerating it to yourself, so it naturally comes out as exaggerated to your wife. And because you tend to tell your wife only the things that are the most negative she doesn't know the positive in the rest of the relationship and that's how many ministers wives house more bitterness than the minister for years and years and that's not fair to your wife so this question is very valid in many ways so you need to be you need to be wise here and not just blurt things out and when you're upset and make it make it all the more all the more negative
1: How can the office bearer's wife encourage the children when their father's absence is felt in his service to the church? That's a very good and real question. Um, I think it's just God's grace that um, our children um, and a family can can be upheld when their dad is um, very busy in the church. Um I think the positive attitude that my husband just mentioned of not criticizing the church to the children is super important here, that uh, the children realize that mom is fully invested and dedicated to the church um, just as much as her husband is and that she loves the church just as much as he does and that even when maybe not very good things are happening, or that when you're receiving criticism that you still love the church, because if Christ loved the church and died for her, then he was perfect and we're sinners, then we certainly ought to love the church as well. And I think we have to show that love uh, to our children and try and explain things. Daddy's serving people. You know, if, if someone has cancer, maybe you can involve the kids in that service you know our, our son and his wife they would um, send cards to someone who was sick and all the kids did when they were little was just scribble a bunch of crayon marks on the card and they'd send it and um, Laura would add a couple words and the, the people loved it you know so just involving the kids in serving the church and praying praying as a family for the people so that the the children feel involved too and maybe if there's an extra special extra busy time maybe you can find some fun things to to make up for it like if dad and kids haven't seen dad all week then Saturday just go out and go to the zoo or something fun to sort of make up for it and then they can look forward to that all week long and try and keep a pulse on it I think when our kids were teenagers they would like if we we tried to do the hospitality thing, but if we were having so many people over and the kids started to say, you know, this is getting a little bit uh, wearying, then we backed off for a while to try to understand what they were going through. Do you have one more?
0: I just want to say a word more about this whole thing of, of criticism because it's such an important role in the ministry. Some of you have heard me talk about this, but um, it applies to marriage, it applies to your relationship with other elders and deacons and pastors, and your relationship to the whole congregation. That, I call it the Pauline sandwich, coming from Paul, and the example I like to use is 1 Corinthians. You know how he begins, he tells them basically how wonderful they are, how much he loves them, um, prays for them regularly thank you for ministering to my physical necessities you're a joy to me i want to i want to come and see you and then it's like he's putting down this slice of bread with these compliments he's being realistic and then he puts in seven slices of meat seven problems seven criticisms how they need to change that's a fat sandwich to first corinthians the answer to all seven problems, actually, is Jesus Christ. That's really his answer. And then at the end of the epistle, he tells them, but don't, don't get me wrong. I love you. Greet one another with the holy kiss. I'll come as soon as I can. I hope you receive my advice and love. You're very dear to me. Uh, I wrote this with my own hand, or something like that. Um, so that's the last slice of bread. And then they eat the sandwich. Now, some people think, even in marriage, that that's being fake. They say, "Just tell me what, like it is." No, no, no. That's never biblical. Read the book of Proverbs. You deal with people realistically. This is not fake. The other is fake because you're only coming out with the criticism. And what you, if you picture this entire pulpit here, to be a person's personality and you just come and give a criticism, whether it's your wife, whether it's another office bearer, whether it's a church member, that person's gonna feel like you're saying their whole personality is because cr- you're not saying anything good. But if you are really talking about just maybe something this big in terms of their whole personality, like less than one percent of it, that needs to change and you couch it with compliments in the front and in the back, they will receive it much better. And that's often what what people who criticize you as an office bearer also don't do. It's like they treat you as all bad because they've been having it on their chest. And I've even had people say to me, I've had this on my chest, I've got to tell you this. And what do they do? They just put the whole thing on my chest by saying absolutely nothing good. That's the worst way to handle people. It's unbiblical, it's ungodly, it's sinful. The Pauline sandwich is the biblical way. You compliment lovingly, constructively criticize, and you compliment again. And then the person can focus just on the problem because it doesn't feel like his whole person is rejected. And that will help you in your marriage a lot. And it will help you in every relationship you have. At work at school, uh, in the church, um, use the Pauline sandwich
1: okay nine thirty I think
0: mary 's got one more question
1: yeah, this is two parts when you had school age children, what did you try to put the most energy with regards uh, towards with regards to ministry? Um, I guess my most energy was just uh, Keeping everybody alive, uh, survival, so that was my first duty and then, um, after my family, whatever energy I had left over, I did do a few things like ladies' Bible study and um, choir, but the priority was definitely um, the family because if you 're too busy you just get you just get worn out and then you're you know they say if mama ain't happy ain 't nobody happy so um Yeah, just everybody has to gauge it for themselves. So um, your family is your priority. And then if you have some leftover time and energy, um, the church. The second part of the question, over your life, what have you learned that you desire to focus your energy on? Perhaps uh, a few with regards to ministry. I guess, um, you know, the direction our lives have taken is... um, I'm focused more on the seminary than the church. I do help in um, ladies' Bible study at church, but um, more um, I'm more directed toward the seminary and traveling and going different places with my husband. So I guess that the common thing in all that is just in whatever way I can, whatever opportunities come to me, that just share the gospel and show the love of Christ in, in the way of kindness and, and helping people in whatever way I can, and um, especially to the least of these. My husband preaches to the masses, and I try to focus on um, the little people. The I guess that's where my heart is, um, the people who aren't noticed, maybe the people who are rejected, and um, yeah, the nobody's that's where my heart is
0: she's really de exaggerating herself she does a lot more than keep us alive my wife is always beating herself up because she's not doing more but her whole her whole life is service her whole life is service and that's that's one reason why i love her so much so that's a slice of bread with no criticism Okay, uh, do you want to take over? Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, God bless you.